0: Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Schizotopia. As always, I'm your host, Maxwell Cody. And joining me from across the pond today, Cybergoth goth giga chad, news personality, and supreme leader of the Ditto Nation, a Mr. Ben Ditto. Ben, how you doing?
1: I'm good, thank you. How are you?
0: I'm doing excellent. Um, who is Ben Ditto? Right, we got to start there because I've seen you around forever. I feel like I have this parasocial relationship with you, but I've never actually talked to you.
1: Who am I? It's a good, It's a a. It's a fairly... Sometimes people message me that on Instagram. They're like, who are you? I don't know how to answer that. I'm I'm an English man, English man in London. I'm a cishet white English man, formerly asthmatic in in London. Um, I have worked in the creative industries for like 14, 15 years. Um, And I grew up in London. I was sort of of involved in the music scene before that. Um, And yeah, I sort of drifted into social media a long time ago, MySpace era, and I've been there ever since really.
0: Okay. I remember thinking about thinking about the difference between MySpace era and now is um, kind of mind boggling. But I've seen you post a lot of stuff, a lot of old pictures where you kind of like a, you're kind of part of like a cyber goth counterculture that I'm only vaguely familiar with. I do not want to blow my own trumpet
1: here, but I was part of the initial initial kind of uh, ideation of cyber-goth as a subculture. So okay. This is like 19, the, the mid-1990s, um, we used to go to a club in London called the Slime Light, which is a very popular kind of goth industrial club. And at the same time, there was a shop that opened in Camden called Cyber Dog, which was like trance rave cyber clothing. And a bunch of us used to go there after going we to Slime Light and like making money in illicit ways. And we'd spend it on clothes at Cyber at Dog and then go back to Slime Light, kind of half goth, half like trance, you know, go a trance style. Um, And that was part of how it all started. It was just like, yeah, um, a a moment in time. But before that, you had, um, what do you have, like cyberpunk. So it's not, not to be confused with cyberpunk, which is a much older thing. Well, but were you guys like influenced by
0: William Gibson, influenced by cyberpunk literature? Or was it just kind of part of that 90s cultural zeitgeist of, you know, uh, before uh, before social media and the internet really took over and there was still maybe some like really fun fantasies about what the the future cybernetic world was going to
1: be? I would say definitely. But as you said, there wasn't internet then. So, you know, we uh, like read Neuromancer and we were interested in stuff we saw on TV, but there wasn't really much up. you know, if you wanted to explore cybernetic culture, like it didn't have a computer, certainly didn't have computers or or anything like that. So you'd have to explore it through like magazine articles that you found or TV shows that you saw, maybe renting the renting videos or whatever. But do, do you know what I mean? Like the amount mm-hmm. of information was much much less. It definitely was interesting to me and my friends for sure, but like it was interesting in a sort of. um observation way because we couldn't take part in it you know it's like this stuff looks fucking cool but we don't know how to do it you know unless unless you (laughs) unless you're a computer scientist or something like i don't know i had computers since the 80s for sure but i think anything with the power to do the stuff that cyber cyberpunks were talking about was real it was still in the realms of very very much science fiction i remember watching a tv show called the word and they, I think it was the word, they had an interview with a cyberpunk and he was it was like a night on the town with a cyberpunk and he was solving crimes with like his computer. <laughs> this is like, <laughs> like 92, 93. And it was, it was dismal, you know, it was like, it was like an embarrassment, but it was also super cool. You know, it's like, this isn't really working, but I can see where this is going. There was a lot of that, you know.
0: I well, this is something I always wonder about because I maybe we're about the same age because I grew up on you know paperback science fiction novels and like B movies from Blockbuster, um, and my, my favorite stuff was always science fiction, uh, cyberpunk, anything anything that was adjacent to that, and I, I wonder if if like the kids who are coming up now. I don't think they understand how there was all this weird messianic expectation around technology in the future in the 90s. Like it was still technology was still mysterious and exciting because my two older brothers were like classic 80s nerds who were really into D&D and computers. So I grew up somewhat around that stuff, too. But I didn't have the Internet, like the Internet at my house. I didn't have the Internet at my house. Until I was about 14 years old. And I remember that was a big deal, getting the Internet at my house. And I remember like having to figure out MySpace and stuff like that. And even then, there was still there was still this expectation of like a future kind of cyberpunk world that was going to be cool. And now I feel like we're living in the cyberpunk world. But what's funny about that to me is that it's not Neuromancer. It's Snow Crash. It's not 1984, it's idiocracy. Like we're living in the dumbest iteration of of cyberpunk that could ever exist. And uh, I don't know. I So I know you're part of that cyber goth counterculture. And I just wonder, like, I don't know if you could have
1: that culture again today. Well, they haven't replaced, I think. So, I mean, as an analogy, thinking about graphic design, right? You know, I, I studied graphic design a little bit. And if you think about graphic designers in the 1950s, 1960s, it was very easy to be a, like, A really innovative graphic designer because the the ideas hadn't been done yet and now there's been decades of like the finest minds applying themselves to what we could do with every known technology and unknown technology and I wouldn't say that they've run out but we've definitely killed the future do you know what I mean I think also as a lot of those utopian ideas happened and proved to be dystopian people aren't so keen to kind of project a future based like a utopian future based on technology as they were before and this is off the back of post world war II futurism do you know what i mean it, i don't think that what we were exposed to in the 80s and 90s like it didn't come in, come from nothing it came from you know the jetsons or <laughs> whatever do you know what i mean there was, there was a lot of um you know flying cars and cute kind of floating sofas and whatever else back to the future all of that stuff so i think you know really what we've done as a as a as a species is kill hope for the future by creating it based on our own fantasies and, and you know it's interesting what you were saying about um it being a shit idiocracy version. Somebody was talking about seeing it was like a like a delivery driver, it was like an Uber Eats driver in the US, like a, or a DoorDash kind of person. They had stopped in a cafe and they had like all of their electronic kit out. It was like, oh yeah, this is this is the future. It's like loads of cheap shit of Amazon mesh network kind of communication devices that cost very little that are made in China. And I think that it is fascinating what's happening now. Is fascinating. It's just a lot shittier and cheaper and more like chaotic than anybody could have predicted. It's like, you know.
0: Well, so what's interesting to me is that there's this kind of like two faces of the old futurism. One was this kind of like American hyper 1950s fantasy where in the future we're going to have hoverboards and it's going to be the Jetsons and it's going to be all of that. And then there's the, you know, the dark side of that that was like, no, the future is going to be uh, Terminator and the Matrix and it's going to be Jihad Against the Machines and like cool underground cyber goth warriors and and, and stuff like that. And now we're in the future. (laughs) We're in the cybernetic apocalypse and it's neither. People don't want to be, kids say they don't want to be cyberpunk. They want to be furries or they want to do like weird reactionary stuff where it's interesting how much time people spend online kind of fantasizing about nature. All of these kind of like trad stand in fields uh, accounts and stuff like that and all this kind of return to nature stuff. That ends up being the the, the actual cyberpunk future. So I, that's, I guess that's why that's why that, that whole cyber goth thing is such an interesting relic to me um, I guess I was not really a part of it, but I, I I feel a certain nostalgia for it. And so when you when you post these pictures of like these elaborate, you know, cyber goth gear where you're kind of like hyperstitiously trying to dress up like the future and it's still fun and it's still exciting, and there's still kind of like a Mad Max matrix um thing, spirit that's animating it, um it it's kind of sad to see that that's that's the future was never going to be that cool, right? That's like maybe the biggest disappointment that a guy. Uh, like me from my generation could possibly experience.
1: Yeah, I think it's maybe it's important to to remember that this sort of con- this concept of that type of future was just a moment in time as well. So, like you know, maybe in the sort of 1600s, because of the 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 situation with technology at that time. They weren't able to imagine anything like the kind of futurism or, you know, the future predictions that we had in the 70s and 80s and 90s, because there just wasn't anything. There was, you know, there was nothing to kind of draw inspiration from technologically. And then that kind of took off over the sort of 18th, 19th, definitely 20th centuries. But that's not I don't think it's always been how human beings have thought. You know, I don't think human beings have always been like fantasizing about all this cool shit that could happen in the future. That's like, you know, what I mean, it's it's a moment in time. It's not the way we have always been.
0: Well, I would say in the past, it was a religious uh, or kind of a spiritual, at least in like the history of the West, quote unquote, it, it, it was kind of a spiritual idea that, you know, in the future, there will be a kingdom of God, or in the future, there will be this apocalypse or something like that. Uh, in the future, even, I think, I wonder, like, maybe someone out there has written about like what kind of futurism w- existed for the romans did they have some idea of what the the roman empire was supposed to be uh, you know in 100 years from when they were living that would be interesting to look into but i feel like there're still weird teleological ideas bouncing around it's just now they're all they revolve around technology and and capitalism it's just that we used to think of capital is something that was going to rationalize the world and now it's something that irrationalizes the world and i I think only now are people coming to terms with that and so when i when i talk to zoomers who send me a lot of fan mail i you know they they're the most schizophrenic about this uh, of anyone because they're both like there's still a little bit of that cyberpunk fantasy going on but then immediately there's this fascination with um you know, like the Unabomber or something like that, the need to escape technology. So you can see it even in them. They can't make up their mind about whether or not they want to fuse with technology or whether they want to reject it. It's funny because there is something, there's something Luciferian in the proper sense of it that, you know, you can't decide whether or not you want to um, serve in heaven or reign in hell.
1: There's a really good book by John Gray called Black Maths, which is about apocalyptic thinking and apocalypse, you know, the sort of concept of the end of the world and how that informs culture. And I think that's you know that's a big part of it is that there there is nothing new about apocalyptic thinking there is nothing new about environmental catastrophism you know that's been happening since like the ancient Greeks um and I think that's the thing that undeniably has happened in our lifetime is this like deranged acceleration of technology you know and like I'm old enough to remember people mostly having black and white <laughs> black and white televisions and like dial up phones and now we you know we literally have you know drone swarms and like Got like it, it. It's really mind blowing. I think that you know, I don't know how old you are exactly, but you are you and I are in this sort of sweet spot generation of people who've seen both things. So for Zoomers, it must be like you know you've never known a time when this stuff hasn't been happening at a hyper accelerated pace. And yeah, I'm not su- you know I'm not surprised that they I'm not surprised about the things that people are finding interesting in culture. You know, a lot of kind of Ted K worship and whatever else. Um, I don't know. Even concepts like accelerationism wouldn't have been possible when we were younger, you know what I mean? It's but that's part of this whole sort of apocalyptic ap- apocalyptic thinking which is sort of inherent to humanity really.
0: So I want to talk to you about extreme content. Um I've I've been developing this concept for a long time that I call mesmerizing disgust. I see mesmerizing disgust as the engine of the internet. Um and I actually see you as a master of mesmerizing disgust. Uh you know that there is a certain type of horror uh, that the internet allowed for, a certain type of pornography uh, or level of pornography that the, the internet allowed for, that creates this. I can't look. I hate it, but I can't look away from it. Um, it this kind of weird sadomasochistic relationship that you develop with extreme images. Um, I often talk about how you know two girls, one cup, and ISIS were kind of doing the same thing. Um, making something so grotesque that people can't look away from it. Um, and, that, and that being the way that you go viral, and that being the way that you dominate the algorithm, that sort of thing. Um, I was part of your Telegram group for a while until I had to tap out. But you clearly have a, how to put it, a fixation on the darkness, a a, a love of the mesmerizing disgust that I, I don't think I've ever seen in anybody else
1: yeah i I mean i can't argue with that (laughs) i I would i would frame it in a different way in that everything i post on there is i find it beautiful like i'm not saying that to be an edgelord like i find it beautiful if i don't think something's beautiful i won't post it there's an awful lot of kind of extreme content out there which isn't beautiful in my opinion like (laughs) i have just in toilet humor or scatology or you know um bursting whatever like i fucking hate that stuff like everything I post on there pretty much universally it's either because I think it's funny or because I think it's beautiful so I come from a place of like um sort of br- like very brutal beauty like what's the what's the most sort of paradoxical image that I can find like that you know causes very extreme feelings and extreme confusion and dissonance um and I think it's interesting you said about two girls one cup or uh, an Isis because and even one one guy one cup whatever it was called is that, oh
0: yeah don't let, let's not forget that classic <laughs>
1: There is a significant difference though. Do you know what I mean? I think that ISIS, ISIS stuff had um there's one particular ISIS video of somebody, there was a GoPro strapped to a shotgun and somebody being shot in the head. And it was it caused me so much kind of um it was watching it was like taking ketamine. I, like absolutely like taking ketamine. It was the most surreal thing I've I've experienced in terms of watch it looking at images. It was fucking mm-hmm. awful you know awful thing because it was like that i have just been given pov for the first time of somebody having their head blown off do you know what i mean and i think that's you know as somebody who's played a lot of you know computer games and that kind of thing to suddenly have this like oh no this is real you know this is real and it's very well produced the colors are good it's right. very high definition i found it so disorientating and i lo- i f- you know i have to say i find a lot of that stuff difficult to watch i don't post things because i think it's like hilarious like haha look at these people being hurt it's not like that do you know what i mean i find that stuff disturbing uh, and i find the, the the sort of process of being disturbed interesting and i want to explore it but it's always got an, uh, like an undertone of i find it aesthetically beautiful pretty much always um that, the- that's that's interesting that you point that out because
0: yeah you never never in your your telegram you never posted any like pus stuff and that's like one of the most popular forms of mesmerizing disgust in my opinion is like you get to enjoy the experience of of you know vacating a um, a boil or something like the satisfa- the perverse satisfaction people get out of squeezing zits that's like that's kind of maybe the most low tier mesmerizing disgust um, but a connoisseur such as yourself, no you don't <laughs> you don't engage in that. you engage in the real stuff um, Where was it? I mean, the fact I'm actually kind of shocked that you would compare it to ketamine. Because this is kind of exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, I feel like what ISIS was doing is that they they took what Two Girls, One Cup was, and they, I hate to use the term, but they weaponized it. They figured out a way to weaponize it um, and to make something that was in... in if you if, if, if you'll really indulge me, it, it, make it into something that was even more effective than 9-11 in some ways, because 9-11 lived on as a as an image of mesmerizing disgust. Right. It, it, that more than the death toll, more than any of the actual physical damage it did to the United States, it burned into everybody's psyche as this huge symbol of mesmerizing disgust and this thing that we watched over and over and over and over and over and over and over again and relived it over and over and over and over and over again. And so even when people like do little jokes and little memes or they like recreate 9-11 in video games and stuff like that, I feel like that's just another like outer orbit of mesmerizing disgust.
1: I think it's interesting, the 9-11 example, because that was, you know, in terms of, media representation of violence and you know things that get burned into it i would say that obviously it was exceptionally powerful i didn't i don't think it provoked a feeling of disgust though i think it's more a feeling of helplessness do you know what i mean it there's there's something like intensely detached and nihilistic about it but there's no you never saw anybody close up enough to be disgusted especially not in the sort of most the most sort of prevalent imagery everything is from quite a far distance and the most spooky stuff is like a human being as a kind of tiny little matchstick man falling. Do you know what I mean? That to me, I, I
0: was going to say the images, the the stuff when people really started to lose it. And I mean, I I mean, I grew up in a military town in California, in the United States, and you know the. I still remember viscerally people's reaction to 9-11 and um, I would say disgust was definitely a big part of it, but it was a big mix of rage and disgust, but where it becomes mesmerizing disgust is when you're watching those images over and over again. And I do remember when those images of the people jumping rather than burning. Uh, came out and people were th- there were you know enhanced versions of them that started getting spread around the internet. That was just another round of mesmerizing disgust where you're now staring at these almost like a microscope watching uh, ants burn or something like that. Right? It's this. It's almost the same type of uh, fascination beyond right. the rage, beyond the political rage, beyond the symbology of it. There's like the the raw visceral me- mesmerizing disgust, and that's that's what's that's the that's the real energy. That's the real vital energy behind it that's pulling people in.
1: I think it was so, like, to compare that to the ISIS example, for example, you know, with ISIS, it was 4K, bright colored, very well lit, very well art directed, you know, extremely choreographed. And this was kind of the other end of the spectrum. Like, it was grainy, black and white in the distance. But I think what ISIS, ISIS left nothing to the imagination. And um, I think that, you know, the documentation of 9-11 left everything, like, the horror was in your mind. Do you know what I mean? You can see a person's like how would that feel how would it feel to be that person falling contrasted with somebody pushed out of a you know off a turret by isis so
0: they're on fire, the right.
1: and it's like yeah i can really imagine how this feels because i'm i'm experiencing it with you do you know what i mean but like, that's
0: you, but that's what i'm saying i feel like they in a way that the the, the isis videos were more were, were better than 9-11 they were more intense than 9-11 they're they're a more advanced to sophisticated form of terrorism than something like 9-11 it's a more you, you don't need a huge Physical spectacle when you can have this little uh, highly potent microdosed um, psyop that you can drop on people. Um, so what cool. that would be that, but <laughs> before we go totally in the weeds, um, get, yourself an,
1: get yourself an ideology that can do both. <laughs>
0: <You> know, <like laughs> uh, actually, what I want to ask you about is like, when did you start looking at extreme content?
1: Um, so I would say when I was uh, growing up in the eighties like um what was it called like video, that there was a thing in the uk where certain films were banned and they were called video nasties so they were films that were only available on video and people would pirate them and they were illegal um and that was like a mythological thing so i had heard about these and i was a little bit of you know most kids growing up in the uk right. obsessed with like you know i want to see evil dead on vhs whatever um, and then I got I went to an exhibition called Visions of Tokyo at the Victorian Albert Museum, which is like it's a decorative arts museum in London. It's an amazing museum. And they had recreated a Tokyo street with all of the you know, this was the eight, late 80s. So it had like, you know, amazing lighting and technology and all this shit we didn't have over here because at the time, Japan was much more technologically advanced. And in mm-hmm. the shop, they had like an aeroguro section. So I, I was really young. I was like, you know, probably not even 10 yet. But I remember looking through this Eroguro book and just being like, this is fucking wild like it just burnt itself into my retinas and after that I just became obsessed with like that imagery and it you know it'd been like uh, you know I can't remember which artist it was but it was some extreme you know Japanese like violent manga stuff Right. Uh, and after that I just became a bit like obsessed with violent imagery and um, yeah that, that has just remained since then I was I would seek out like horror films where you were reading sci-fi I was reading horror so you know I was reading okay. <laughs> James Herbert like you know anything i could get my hands on and i absolutely, i just loved all that shit I lo- the horror films in the 1980s were much more imaginative than they were in the 2000s um, yes. were kind of like there was just a ton of like amazing imaginative gore and like gore for, for a kind of for a, a teenager you know a, a 12 year old in the 80s 90s whatever was a it was our version of rotten.com we didn't have rotten.com Yeah, we had we had horror films i was just about to
0: ask but real quick what would you say um all-time all- favorite horror films the ben ditto top three top four horror
1: films such a difficult question oh and to put me on the spot like that my favorite film of all time, <laughs> my favorite film of all time is evil dead like evil dead one and two as a package okay. just absolute genius and i love the fact that they were done with like zero money with a bunch of friends fucking incredible so that's my like the top of my list and then i would say oh, there's just so many like Society scanners reanimator from beyond, like um, Nightmares and a Damaged Brain. Um, fucking Frankenhooker, um Street Trash, amazing film. Um, there's there's so many. I could give you a list of like 30 films which I which I loved and watched over and over again. Um, yeah, generally the more imaginative ones, you know, like the thing I loved about Street Trash was, you know, it's about like uh, an, an out-of-date alcohol that melts people, mostly <laughs> from this population yeah. of California. But it's like the, the 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 special effects and the you know it's so imaginative and funny and cool and colorful. Do you know what I mean? It's not like everything after the year two thousand became sepia tone fucking stories about some haunted girl or whatever. Well, the
0: the PS two blood that's the funniest thing about horror films from that era. When you watch them now, how many of them? That's when the like scourge of CG started, and so you'll you'll be watching a horror movie. It's not so bad. And then it gets to the blood and it's like that it's that PS2 graphics, PS3, whatever um, kind of video game blood that shoots out of people and otherwise good movies. And it, it, it's its aged terribly. But I, I couldn't handle horror films as a kid um, at all. And so even like even the violence and like sci fi movies that I loved was was almost too intense for me, even like my one of my all time favorite movies, Total Recall.
1: Even though violence um, like, in that
0: movie was a little too much for me. Um, those, I think those
1: were like, it's, you know, when you say best horror films, some of my favorite films, hundred percent were original Robocop. Um, yeah. Total Recall, Running Man, all of that stuff was incredible, you know, but those was that was sci-fi, I guess. But, it but had I didn't, like amazing violence. I,
0: I didn't really start, I didn't watch horror films until I was already an adult. Um, and so some of the ones you mentioned, I saw, but I saw them as an adult. I don't have that, that childhood um, memory of them. And it, it it's crazy how much a lot of the stuff from the eighties and early nineties holds up to this day, and how a lot of that stuff I think will actually be frozen in time, um, and will way outlast uh, what what their creators ever expected them to. Because the quality of everything else will go down. But would you say is there any? Do you have any favorites from like the the twenty first century? Anything that you, you feel like is still kind of up to snuff?
1: I think that from the I think it's Cabin in the Woods. So from Cabin in the Woods until The Witch. Everything in between The Cabin in the Woods and The Witch is fucking shit. Like I, that, that, <laughs> right. there's not one single good horror film in that time, I would say, apart from like really, really sort of tiny indie indie movie type things. After that, I would say we, we've reentered a time of good horror. Malignant is fucking great. Malignant is a great horror film. Um, I like, you know, I like Midsummer, I like Hereditary. Um, I love The Witch. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're, so, we're sort of going back into an an era of good horror in that time. I'd say there's probably more good sort of science fiction, like more good science fiction than horror. Um, my memory is failing me a bit. I can't give you many more examples, but I would honestly say that from like cabin in the woods until the witch, just zero, it was all sepia toned exorcism of some fucking boring cunt bullshit. I hated it. How <laughs> did you, uh, did you see hereditary? Yeah. Loved it
0: yeah, that was that movie fucked me up. That I, I, no movie has scared me that bad as an adult ever. I don't think. I mean, I could not sleep right for a week. But what's funny about that to me is the stuff that absolutely scared the shit out of me wasn't the like gore or the people lighting on fire or having their heads cut off. The thing that absolutely almost made me shit my pants in the theater was just that grandmother spirit slowly materializing in the corner of the room. <laughs> like that That's kind cool. of stuff. The supernatural stuff or the stuff that has to do with like, uh, or anything that has to do with like ETs, that was the stuff that always freaked me out. Because I didn't grow up, I mean, I didn't grow up religious, but everyone around me was religious. Everyone around me was afraid of demons and stuff. Um, But I was only ever afraid of being abducted by aliens. That's not sequitur. But the grandma, (laughs) the materializing grandma, that for some reason that fucked with me on a level that nothing else could.
1: Well, you know, I think I'm being unfair because also there was Blair Witch Project and The Ring, and a few other films sort of probably in the time that I was dismissive of. And the reason why Blair Witch Project was good is that, you know, there's a very specific, very fucking creepy moment, which doesn't have any, you know, there's no, uh, you know, there's no kind of flashy VFX or CGI or whatever. It's just a really, really amazingly timed piece of cinema. Um, Mm. I mean, I think the thing that I really object to is Saw and Hostel and all of those kind of, you know, all of, all of that shit that's where I that's what really turned me off it's like you know people would call it gore porn and I would say that's where you know when you were talking about mesmerizing disgust and you know talking about my telegram channel you know when like a relative gives you a gift because they think you'll like it like oh you like you like you like this thing here's a book about it and it's like the most insulting shit I see. But, you know and I think that you know when people expect me to like certain things and I absolutely hate them um, sore and hostile and all of that stuff is very much in that category. That's what I dislike about gore and violence and all of that shit.
0: So I wouldn't um it, it's funny because I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't even think of those movies as examples of mesmerizing disgust. Um because I mean I guess maybe on some level it could be argued that they are given the definition I've given um it's people being glued to something because it's it's uh disgusting to them. It's viscerally disgusting to them. Um, but it's not, when I think of mesmerizing disgust, I think of it as like how the entire media works, not just like individual movies and not just like, and not just like the freak sideshow stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I one of my other favorite, one of my other favorite examples, and I don't know if you remember this controversy, but um, I brought it up several times because I still think about it to this day all the time, but it, it was the Carl's Jr. commercial with Paris Hilton. And she's eating a cheeseburger in a bikini and the, the cheeseburger juices are, are, are they they're dripping all over her and she's like eating some sauce from between her tits or whatever. And people in America got really mad about it people in America are really mad about it and we're complaining and like, how dare you uh, make this pornographic cheeseburger commercial, but people use sexy ladies to sell stuff all the time and nobody gets mad. And so I actually, my theory is is that people weren't mad about the woman being sexualized. They're mad about the cheeseburger being sexualized because they realized that the, there was no difference between fast food and porn or at least in the way that they're marketed and experienced.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. We had, um, yeah, we had a sort of we had a moment here, where <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if anybody was actually aware of what you said, but that makes total sense. We had a moment in the UK where there was this big kind of like, um, have you ever heard of Brass Eye? No, what is that? It's an amazing satire show um, by Chris Morris, like really, really great. One of mm-hmm. well, you know one of my favorite things of all time. He did a paedophile special, which is it was a kind of it was a satire on the media's um, hypocrisy about. He pedos, pedophilia, that kind of stuff, and this newspaper in the UK run, ran a big sort of front page takedown of him, like you know how fucking dare you do this pedo shit. On the next page, they had a thing about Charlotte Church, who was fifteen at the time, saying like you know count down to her sixteenth birthday. Basically, like the most like repulsive sexualizing of an of a minor. <laughs> like, and there was this the, it was this real moment for everyone where you're like, can you not see how dissonant this is? Like how repulsive you are. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the sort of, um, you know, you guys have been doing this for decades, like commodifying the body, and when right. somebody satirizes it and calls you out on it, you can't even see it. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It was yeah, it, was... it just registers. It doesn't register as satire at all. No, because they're t- they're still too inside it. And I guess you know, looking back at the way that women were portrayed in adverts in the '80s, for example, it is now astounding. But at the t- <laughs> you know, it is. <laughs> it's quite astounding to so even the way people talked in movies like 15 years ago and i think that you know that's an interesting thing about the time we're living in now is that we are experiencing genuine social change like there is a genuine change in the in what's okay and what's not okay and part of kind of you know being on social media i'm sure you find as well is that um you know one has to be thoughtful when navigating that like there are things that would have been would not have been funny 10 years ago that are now and vice versa like do you know, I...
0: So I I don't know about genuine social change. I don't know if I can agree with that because my the thing that bothers me, the thing that makes my skin crawl, is I feel like people are just becoming more people are becoming more isolated. They're becoming more solipsistic. They're becoming desocialized because they spend all their time um, interacting with people through screens or just not interacting with actual people at all, but living in virtual realities. Um, and then a lot of the a lot of the emphasis on uh, whatever you want to call it, being woke or being politically correct or being polite or, or um, understanding or something like that. I often feel like that's just a that's just a actually a cover for being antisocial. I'm not being antisocial I'm being polite. I you know I'm not uh, I'm not taking up space or I'm not or whatever. it's it's something has or has more to do with being like I don't have anything materially to demonstrate in my life, but I can demonstrate certain virtues or identity markers on the internet um i I don't know that that stuff freaks me out because it makes it feel like you know the wall between real life and living in a video game is is um dissipating
1: a hundred percent i wouldn't say that the social change i'm talking about is all good i just think it's definitely there so it's like the way that if you watch of like a jason staten film from 15 years ago for you will be like (laughs) your mind will be blown by the things that people could say in films then and like you'd be like there's no way you would say that now no way but i think it's um I don't know, like, oh, this, I mean, I talk about this sort of labeling and identifying and, you know, neoliberal commodification of the self and the idea, you know, atomized identities, whatever stuff all the time. I think it's, um, yeah, it's complex, isn't it? It's.
0: The way I always put it is like in the nineties we had political correctness and that was the thing that all the talk show radio hosts were yelling at each other about. Then (laughs) 9-11 happened, political correctness died. It was completely dead for a couple of years it was just kind of open season, uh, dicks out for America mode. And then <laughs> political correctness was reborn as wokeness. Um, and then and, and then wokeness was kind of a way for us to, I don't know, deal with the fact that the whole war on terror thing uh, hadn't really uh, made the world safe for democracy like it was supposed to. I guess that would
1: be to put it as politely as possible. Yeah, I would say that, like, I guess I'm trying to be less cynical about this stuff. And I think <laughs> things like, you know, Like the Me Too movement, for example, that's a great example of something that there was a lot of very fucking annoying discourse around it at the time, but ostensibly Mm it's been a good, like it has changed. Do you know what I mean? Like I remember attitudes to, you know, sort of gender attitudes when I was like 16, when I first started work and they are radically different now you know i mean Mm -hmm. like radically different and that's like i think you know we can be cynical about stuff i don't i also think that obviously a lot of it's performative and a lot of you know all of the sort of civil unrest in the u.s after george floyd's killing and stuff like what fucking difference has that made do you know what i mean like that it, it is easy to be cynical about where things have just got worse and worse and worse but i think it's important to see where like there has been a shift in discourse and perception and you know even like fucking you know gay rights like I fucking hate Pride. Pride Month drives me up the wall but like is the world a fairer place for homosexuals now than it was 50 years ago yeah definitely <laughs> you know
0: I uh, once again I'm going to be a little more cynical because I feel like now the gays have just been gentrified because um, <laughs> now everybody everybody under the sun it's kind of like if everybody's gay nobody's gay uh, I was talking about this yesterday. It's like if everybody is queer or if everybody says, well, my my kink is my sexual orientation and that makes me non hetero or whatever, like all, all of these endless variants or even like I don't know if you saw this video. This is almost mesmerizing disgust. Um, I don't know if you saw this video that was making around on Twitter of the the like force feed uh, beer, kink beer thing that was they were doing. Where you can order a beer and then you 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 can ask for this kind of a force feed service where the the bartender um, force feeds you the beer while insulting you while you have your hands behind your back or something like that. It was some kind of like infantilization fetish thing that you could get at this bar. Yeah. And w- w- my thing is like, okay, it's same thing with kink. If everything is kink, nothing is kink. If if kink is something that you can order with your with your hip IPA. Then it's not really kink at all. It's a kind of Freudian jazzercise. It's a way for you to like, I don't know, do some kind of public therapy. Um, uh, it becomes indistinguishable from some type of personal therapy. It's no longer kink. It's no longer transgressive or anything like that. And then it kind of, uh, I don't know, it deludes it for everybody else.
1: I mean, I feel like I feel like probably I, I will get into trouble for even talking about this because I'm I'm not queer. I wouldn't call myself queer, but. Um, yeah I mean if if everyone's queer no one's queer that's undeniably true and I think a lot of things like you know um, what's that Chris Dava book I kind of like my my memory fails me but you know stuff about you know the abject like stuff about like real you know the sort of creativity surrounding queerness and all of that kind of stuff yeah when it becomes I I wouldn't say gentrified I'd just say it's become like blandified and homogenized and you know what you know fucking target Gay pride, kids' clothes, whatever, disgusting bullshit. Like, I don't know. It's it's not. I think that's, with it, the kink thing is really interesting because I've you know my first ever job was working for a fetish company when I was sixteen. Like, I'm very interested in sexual deviances and perversions and that kind of thing. Um, but you know, it has become a shopping list. You know, kink has become something that one tries. Like, you you know, probably Fifty Shades of Grey had a lot to do with this, and then lockdown. Mm-hmm people's sort of sexual liberation afterwards and like that fucking quiz that people take that tells you you're 67 percent rope bunny or whatever else you know injected firmly into sexuality and i think that you know fetish was something that was quite remote from capitalism for a while because it was subcultural and now it's not you know it's like yeah you need to have a kink what's it going to be pick one from this list this will work out your percentage and then it'll match you with somebody who has the exact that's not what fucking that's not what fetish is but i also equally get um i get exasperated with people who are elitist about fetish stuff it's like you know there's nothing i think kind of gatekeeping sexual exploration is just as irritating as commodifying it so like you know do you know what i mean like this yeah being being sexually experimental should be for everyone it would be healthy if it was for everyone and i think it's sort of being too Probably you could say you could say the same critique about queerness and you know all of that stuff as you could about kink and fetish. And that there, there's good sides and bad sides.
0: Have you ever seen a Serbian film?
1: Uh yeah. I, I wasn't paying much attention though. Um but I, I know I, <laughs> All
0: right. Well, I was kind of wondering where that would fall on the Ben Bendito scale. Is that proper mesmerizing disgust, or is it like uh hostile-esque cringe? Um but I saw that movie when I very first got to Turkey. I very first got to Istanbul, and I was staying with a friend of a friend. And I remember he answered the door because um, he he was actually he ran a hostel, and he actually looked like Byzantine Jesus. Um, I was actually struck by how that you know that Byzantine that famous Byzantine icon of Jesus, where his eyes are kind of uh, his face is kind of um, asymmetrical and 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 a little bit haunting. That's exactly what he looked like, and I thought, wow, I've gone back to the Byzantine Empire. But I was hanging out with this guy, and he asked me if I've ever seen a Serbian film. And I thought he was just asking me about Serbian films in general. And I was like, no, I don't think so. And he's like, oh, would you like to watch it? This motherfucker didn't tell me, Byzantine Jesus didn't tell me anything about what this movie was. And (laughs) I sit down to watch this movie with him. It just got to Istanbul. And um, I watched this two and a half hour, I guess, highbrow snuff film, um, if I'm being generous. And uh, at the end, I did start laughing because it gets so disgusting and so despicable. And then you kind of realize that that's the joke right or that's the punchline is that it is supposed to be um de- de- depraved beyond all comprehension and or well, I don't know what the point I was trying to make with this it was going to be something about i guess what i was trying to get at is that at a certain point the transgression has to become competitive you know i'm always talking about transgression of the transgression now once you've transgressed this you only have two places to go you either backtrack the transgression and claim that that's the transgression or you somehow push the transgression forward even further because where else are you going to go um and apparently just giving up on transgressing is not an option in our culture anymore so there's only so many places you can go and i feel like that's why people end up kind of bottlenecking um in these really
1: predictable ways well that is a very interesting topic because i think in terms of extremism like real extremism there are certain kind of boundaries and I think that like when I don't know if you saw it, but there was an app that came out that let you kind of guess whether or not you were talking to an AI. And the invariably, invariably, the way to tell if you're talking to an AI or not is to get it to say a racist word. Like if it says a racist word, it's not going to be an, a- an AI at right. the moment. Um, and I think with extreme subcultures, the access to those is like the willingness to be extremely racist or extremely something else or extremely. Right. And I think that those are the lines like they haven't changed much in decades or maybe millennia. I don't know like I don't know how long they've been around for, but you know there are certain things that like sensible people or decent people won't cross. Do you know what I mean and like if you want to have an exclusive little kind of club of like the the world's worst edge lords, you can't you cross those boundaries, so whether it's a community of racist people or particular sexual deviants or whatever it is um but I think that that's why I'm interested in other combinations with transgression like things can be more beautiful or they can be you know it doesn't have to just be more violent more blood more cutting more do, do you know what i mean like if you combine that's that right. combine that with beauty um that's why i find that interesting it's like i'm i'm not seeking the most like the most violent image i'm seeking the the most beautiful disturbing image and for me that's a never ending quest do you know what i mean you can probably find like i don't know i can think of the most unpleasant film i've seen for sure I definitely wouldn't want to see it again, but I don't think I'll ever find the most beautiful image. So, you know, that's how I deal with it personally. I think other people deal with it by just becoming more and more and more edgy until they go into something like really unpleasant, which I'm not willing to go into. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah. So that's the that's the danger of that stuff.
0: So you've been doing a lot of work about, um, you've been doing a lot of work following the Ukraine-Russia war.
1: Hmm.
0: And I think I read that you are of Slavic Ukrainian descent.
1: I've got some, like my father's family has um, Belarusian and Ukrainian. My grandma in Kiev. So, yeah. And so
0: there's a a personal connection to the conflict.
1: Yeah. I I also have a lot of Ukrainian friends. I was working there a lot before the war and I've been following it since I've been following the situation there since before 2014. So, yeah, um, for, for various reasons, you know, it's it's. Subculturally interesting, what happened in 2014 was subculturally interesting and I was following it back then. So I guess like when everything really kicked off, I already had a fair amount of knowledge about it.
0: Well, so what's been interesting to me is for a while I was following a pro-Ukraine telegram and a pro-Russian telegram. And it was interesting because both of them, if you were just reading one or the other, both of them would have you believe that, you know, Ukraine was um, hours away from from completely repelling the Russians or that the Russians were minutes from taking Kyiv. But the other funny thing was, is that uh, they would post lots of combat videos and some of them were convincing, but some of them seemed obviously staged. Um, And sometimes, you know, it would be the same video and you couldn't tell which side was fighting. Um, or you know, or, or who was who, and and both sides could be claiming, well, this is this is our guys winning, and, and this sort of thing. But I started to see that kind of uh, mesmerizing disgust quality start to come up again, where the line between political propaganda and kind of a potent uh, violence porn as a way of pushing your cause, kind of in the way that ISIS was, um, starts to become starts to become the MO again. And I was just curious what your observations of that were.
1: Well it's I think it's partly, you know, it's technologically enabled. You know, there's that Baudrillard essay about the Gulf the Gulf War didn't happen. I can't remember right. what the title is, but you know, this is the sort of 2022, 23 evolution of that. In that, you know, now people can be live streaming from a drone or a GoPro. So, you know, there's there are various there are various sort of uh, expressions of that. One of them is obviously political propaganda, one of them is like violence porn. You know, there's a lot of this kind of, you know, war addict. Channel, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking like <clears throat> another side of it is that it is amazing, you know, to be able to see this stuff happening does humanize it to a degree. So it's like, what is more dehumanizing seeing a, a conflict as numbers in a Times column, like the Times of London column, or seeing it through literally the eyes of a fighter going into a trench? You know, which one is, I don't mm-hmm. think, of them are morally better but that is the world we live in you know I know I have friends who are fighting in Ukraine right now and they you know they have GoPros and they do record stuff they save it on hard drives and you know I know the same people were doing the same thing in Syria fighting ISIS and like you know that can be used in various ways I think it's probably I think by and large it's probably a good thing that we are more aware of what this stuff actually does. And you're never going to get away from ghoulish interest in things. Like I don't think you're ever going to get away from people like glorifying war or watching things for sort of morally unsavory reasons. But on the other hand, it is, you know, these are real people doing real things and that's something that we're only just becoming aware of. Like the Gulf War didn't have that aspect, you know, it's just like VHS quality footage of tanks and cybernetic command and control shit. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I mean it's. uh, I would be. Also, it's changed over the nature over the the last year. The nature of it has changed. Disinformation of the level that you're talking about isn't such a big thing anymore because people are really like it's a it's just a fucking long harsh conflict with people battering the shit out of each other now, and I think they're giving a lot less thought to this. Like, oh, it was your missile, it was my missile. Do you know what I mean? It's like um, you know, it has settled down into a regular like two very capable armies fighting each other endlessly and that you know people have run out of shit to say about it really <laughs> other than like oh look here's a new use for a drone here's a russian right. surrendering to a drone you know that was a thing the other day like that's interesting but do you know what i mean i don't think it's being used as a weapon of disinformation in the same way that it was a year ago
0: well so you know i know in the u.s during world war ii it was absolutely forbidden to show any um, dead soldiers you couldn't show them in yep. newspapers. Couldn't show them in film reels. Not until the very end of the war, um, when uh, the the U.S. government felt that people were starting to get um, lax, or or yeah, starting to get lax about victory, were Americans first shown any dead American soldiers on film. Um, and people have always contrasted that with the Vietnam War, which people call that the first TV war. People were watching it every night on television. And then because you know. Kind of medium is the message thing because it's a family watching TV, it's now the family that's going to argue about it. And that's kind of the classic image we have of the Vietnam War is the 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 younger kids looking at this and saying, Well, wait a second, I don't, I don't like this, I don't want to get drafted into this. And maybe the 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 older parents who are a little bit more trusting of the government and of the the cause against communism being being like, Well, no, you you need to, right? Um, and then you contrast that to now, which is now that it's like it's all mediated by social media and but people don't watch things in groups anymore they watch things through their own private personal screen and i also I didn't really get into this but i've also always said like that private screen that that now now that everybody has their own personal screen their own personal people that they look through i feel like that's completely changed the nature of how this uh whole mesmerizing to think mesmerizing disgust thing works because you're talking earlier about you know the hunt for the the illicit videotape um, you had to have a certain kind of personality to do that Right. And that, that's kind of the difference between um, the, the mythical snuff film of the past and then something like, I would say, Two Girls, One Cup, where you would never, the most people who watch Two Girls, One Cup, they would never have gone to a video store and bought that. Never in a million years. They would have never gone to some weird uh, X ray theater and paid for that. Only it takes a certain type of personality to do that. But everybody in today's world might click on a link when they're by themselves. They might, that, that, that little itch of mesmerizing disgust might catch them and they might, they might click that um, see disturbing content button and and go ahead and look at it. And I feel like that is a whole universe different from how it used to be.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think so. I think it's also like, there's nothing, this is something that has come up before. Like I don't think that I talk about or post anything that people aren't generally interesting, interested in. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not. It's not niche interest to want to look at violence or to you know look through your fingers at something awful, or to. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, it's. I think that would be, yeah, that it's not an outlier thing. Like, look at the crowds at an execution in countries where this stuff still happens in public; they're massive. Do you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. I think it's more like, yeah, being. It's massive
0: about, in foreign countries.
1: Yeah, where you're actually allowed to, where you're actually allowed to sort of have right. public. Um, Because I mean, in the
0: the US, we used to have public executions, and that was the biggest show in town. But today, what's interesting to me is today, people would watch that on their phone. But if if, I don't know, if one of these real salt of the earth red states decided to bring back public executions, I'm curious how many people would actually show up and not because they wouldn't want to watch it, but because they would have a sense of shame about it. Um, And not that they wouldn't watch it on their phone, but they wouldn't want they wouldn't be able to stand shoulder to shoulder with somebody else to do it. Though we do have this weird ritual where we don't do it anymore, I don't think. But it used to be like, you know, to prove that you were tough on crime, governors uh, or, or, or would-be presidential candidates would go to public executions. I think I'm pretty sure Clinton did that to prove that he was tough on crime. He went to the execution of... um Someone who's being executed in Georgia, I might get fact checked on that, but there have been instances like that, right? So you have to, as the leader, you have to show that you can you can watch somebody die. But as a um, as a civilian, whereas that used to be something we would publicly enjoy, now we have a sense of shame about it.
1: I think they have a different function as well. It's, it, you know, sending a leader to watch an execution is a bit like sending a young person to an abattoir to see where meat comes from. Like if you're going to be the person responsible, mm-hmm, right? like if you want the state to kill people then you as the person running the state should be okay to fucking watch it I kind of get that I think that you know the the kind of voyeurism you know the the um you know the, that aspect of it I think that if they brought back executions in red states and uh, for public viewing people would find a way to reframe it to make it palatable do you know what I mean I think that there would be a huge appetite for it but there would be some kind of new performative aspect to the audience that would enable them to do that and morally justify it I don't think it would be an empty arena do you know what I mean
0: Mm-hmm. I, yeah but it would be once again it would be a certain type of person who would show up it would be a certain type of oh. motivated person who would show up for that show um yeah. oh i mean i i also still feel like canceling people was kind of like the decaffeinated version of uh public execution and human sacrifice
1: oh 100 percent. yeah it's like a digital digital cancellation is because you can't i mean you know that there, there have been a few live stream suicides and live stream killings and that kind of thing mm-hmm can't program them you can't like say oh this is going to happen on this date whereas with a cancellation there's no end you know there's no there's no end of it you can you can pretty much they're pretty predictable so it's like a sort of slightly unscheduled but pretty regular yeah it is isn't it I guess it's like the thing with cancellation stuff is that it's not really it's not real (laughs) do you know what I mean I don't know it's very strange.
0: Well, I think we are. I think I think with the thing with cancel culture is that we did reach a critical mass where enough people got canceled. And once again, if everybody's canceled, nobody is. And if everybody gets canceled all the time, that the cancellations start to dilute. They don't they don't sting as much.
1: Well, it's happening with the, you know, it's happening very publicly with some people who I have worked adjacent to at the moment. And now I just look at it and it's just funny. Like, you know, what is it? When I think about cancellations, the only stuff I care about, you know, there have been times where somebody has been like you know, exposed to being, like, a really bad wife beater or, like, a sexual abuser, like, in a really horrific right. way. Like, yeah, that's fair. Like, I wouldn't call that a cancellation. I would call that, yes, like... exactly. You know what I mean? I think there's a... That's happened a few times where I've been, like, yeah, I'm not gonna, like, follow you or have anything to do with you anymore. That's really unpleasant. But then when it's this other, like, arbitrary fucking woke whatever stuff, does anybody care? Any, do, do you know what I mean? Like, do, what was that? There was a meme the other day about some liberal saying, like, he, he's gonna die on the hill of Ellen DeGeneres creating a toxic... <laughs> it's, like, it's that, like who fucking cares like no one cares about this shit really and i think that's I, become because so I, I guess what i guess to i was gonna try to
0: wrap a bow on it i'm saying that yes cancellation no longer matters or it's become something that's silly or kind of a joke but that's kind of the problem because the need the need for having some kind of sacrificial object in your society has not gone away clearly i think we would both agree on that but now it's like expressing itself in more and more and more unhealthy ways I i do wonder you know People used to have Christianity, and you know the, the the suffering of Christ, and that's where they could sort of project all of their cathartic need for um, for death and the underworld and this sort of thing. And as we become more secular, now it's like you, you start looking for other other ways of connecting with the dead, other ways of connecting with the with the grotesque, with the mesmerizing disgust, with with cathartic gore, all of that. So you start looking for all these other ways of doing it um, that end up being you know, even more chaotic or. Not as not as to the point as some of these older ways of doing it.
1: Yeah, I think there was a real, I mean, I'm not like, I'm not an atheist. Um, and I think that there's an awful lot, you know, I was posting just this week about this fucking Wired article about like, oh, so psychologists and scientists have discovered that religion fulfills the same function in the brain as drug use. Like no shit, no fucking shit. Now we're going to have the amazing experience of neuroscience commodifying like religion as a pill and a fucking app. Do you know what I mean? That, right. just they've they've magically discovered this thing that everyone has known for millennia um so yeah i think you i I have to say that in in my experience atheism is not very attracted to very many people anymore like it went through a bit of a kind of it went through a phase of being the thing to be Um, i never have been but now I, i i just don't it's not very much in the zeitgeist but it has it's it's not being replaced with anything clear yet maybe because we're all holding our breath for the sort of AI the AI religion, which is coming. <laughs> that's that's coming very soon. And I for one I for one welcome it.
0: Well, I guess it's gonna be the last thing I'm gonna ask you about. What what would your how are you feeling about the AI stuff? What what kind of what kind of what kind of horror might we be able to create with um mid journey? I mean, if I took all of the graphic images uh from your telegram and I ran them through Mid Journey, uh what what kind of Lovecraftian uh cosmic hyper porn could i create
1: well this is the thing so i don't think that that any image that you create would be as disturbing as the real thing and it's the same thing as eating cruel foods do you know what I mean like foie gras pate de foie gras which is mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's cruelly produced the reason why people like eating it is because they know about the cruelty that went into producing it and i think it's the same with a powerful image those things don't have power if they don't represent real suffering do you know what I mean so I think that it you know there are people creating kind of mid-journey gore it's like it's interesting but it doesn't fulfill the same function the function of function of those images they are a window into a world of suffering which would of of something very unpleasant which creates a real feeling of horror I think that all a mid-journey thing would you know mid-journey created imagery would just be a proxy for that and quite a weak one so I don't think we're going to like create like the ultimate horrific mesmerizing disgust image by using ai i think that we we do that perfectly well as human beings i think that you know ai is gonna it'll be a different kind of horror it's like a whole new form of horror
0: what might that be i mean if i if i if i could just get you to be um my favorite sci-fi author for just a minute
1: i think that the thing that terrifies me most about ai is that it's it will reach a point where it's so much more intelligent than anything we can possibly conceive of that we cannot imagine what it will come up with. That's the unknown. That's the horror of AI. Do you know what I mean? There was some again. There was a meme the other day about like a hundred IQ guy guessing what a billion IQ a- AGI is going to come up with. Like <laughs> you cannot comprehend of it. Like we cannot comprehend it. We can't predict it. So that's the true horror. It's just like you know, it's beyond anything we could possibly imagine as human beings so that's you know it's cool but it's also fucking terrifying all right uh ben is there anyone you want to give a shout out to including yourself uh people people <laughs> want to give a shout out. i don't know like all everybody who follows me on instagram and everybody who follows you um i love your account um follow me ben underscore ditto um you know or linktree slash ben underscore ditto to see all my stuff Um, and i just want to yeah thank everybody who is part of this culture that we are honestly i think we are blessed to live at the time we live in now and it is fucking amazing to witness all this stuff and have these conversations and you know so thanks to everyone thanks to all of us
0: and thank you so much thank you